Good morning. If it thunders while I'm talking, I will take that as a sign that God agrees with everything that I'm saying here today. And so that's probably heretical. I'm sorry. Please forgive me if you're new. Glad to be here with you today. Question for you as we get rolling here uh, is, is this. What makes something right or wrong? What is the thing that determines the moral virtue or the moral value of a particular decision that we might make? What makes something right or wrong? Uh, For instance, when our family orders pizza, Katie makes the wrong decision every single time. She puts pineapple on the pizza that she orders. Is there any pineapple people in here? You're wrong. I'm sorry. You guys are wrong. Thunder? Where's the thunder? Okay, there it is. What makes a moral decision right or wrong? There's not a lot of moral implications to the kind of pizza you eat, but there are moral implications in other things that we think about and talk about. According to an article in the Wall Street Journal, there was a study conducted by Richard Topolsky, a professor at George Regent University, where he gave participants a hypothetical situation. Let me, let me read this hypothetical situation to you to see what you would do. Here's what he said. You are walking down a road, and a bus begins careening out of control, and it chaotically begins to bear down on a dog and a human stopped in the middle of the street. From where you are standing, you can only choose to save one of them. Which do you save? Which do you save? And with responses from more than 500 people, the answer was, it depends, right? It depends. It de- like, what kind of dog and what kind of human are we talking about here? Um, everyone who was interviewed said that, they, that if it was a sibling or a grandparent or a close friend and then a strange dog, they, I mean, they would save their sibling over a strange dog. But when it got a little closer with the animal and a little further away with the the people connection, it was really interesting how many responses began rolling in for the dog. Uh, a, a distant cousin or a stranger, uh, pe- four out of ten people said that they would rather save their own dog than a foreign tourist. And so this is a really interesting moral dilemma. Would you rather save a dog or save a stranger? And I mean, how could you refuse that face, right? I don't know this guy. How do you determine whether something is right or wrong? How do you determine whether something is morally acceptable or not? How does a person determine what is good and what is not good? And this is one of those questions that's designed by ethics professors to kind of force us into a moral dilemma. Now, I hope that you would say that saving a human being is more significant than saving a dog. There may be like a dog person in here who leaves in the middle of this. We love you. It's okay. We'll talk later. But, but, but the, the value of human life, and we'll talk about that a little bit more today. Um, let, let me give you another di- dilemma just to see if we can set the stage for this a little bit more. Um, it goes something like this. You and your spouse have just found out that you're pregnant. Got a little baby bump there. The pregnancy is moving along nicely, and the doctor offers you the opportunity to do some prenatal screening for physical or genetic abnormalities. You think, it's a good idea to be prepared, and so you allow the doctor to do the screening, and in the process, you discover your child has a prenatal diagnosis for Down syndrome. And the doctor asks, Are you willing to live the rest of your life raising a child with a disability and all of the uncertainty and struggle that comes with that decision, or do you want to terminate the pregnancy? What do you do? What is the morally acceptable thing to do? How do you determine what is right or what is wrong here? According to a 2017 article, In the Atlantic, the abortion rate for fetuses diagnosed with Down syndrome tops 90%. In Iceland, nearly every fetus with the condition is killed. CBS News reports that between 1995 and 2011, uh, 67% of prenatal diagnoses for Down syndrome were terminated in the United States. In France, it was 77%. In Denmark, 
98%. Is this right or is this wrong? And how do you determine what's right or wrong? Is it you or is it something outside of you? Is it your feelings? Is it your community? Is it your tribe? Is it your government? How do we understand the moral and ethical environment in which we live in? How do we understand what is right and wrong? What is acceptable? That's what we're talking about today on this rainy, rainy day. So as it rains outside on here, I'm going to rain on you, okay? Uh, So let me pray and uh, rain on you, pray, and we'll get going. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. We pray that you would open your word to us, that you would help us to understand God, what it means to be faithful followers of Jesus. Lord, we pray that, that as, it, as it is raining outside, Lord, that, that the heavens would rain down in this room, Lord, that you would thin the veil between heaven and earth, that you would help us to, to see, God, your holiness, Lord, and, and not be crushed by it because we have a mediator between us and God, and he is a person named Jesus, and we worship him here together this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Who ultimately gets to decide? I'm having some problems with my clicker here, Blake. Who ultimately gets to decide what is right or wrong? And so let's let's look at the scriptures to see if we can gain some understanding of this. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Romans chapter 8. It's a great chapter of the Bible. Romans chapter 8, looking at verses 5 through 12. This will be our text for today. And again, we are continuing our our series on confronting Christianity. Hey, Blake, I'm just going to let you do it, okay? I'm going to put this down. Confronting Christianity. And and we're basing this series again off a book by Rebecca McLaughlin. And typically we teach verse by verse through books of the Bible, trying to get some sense of what God is telling us and teaching us in his word. But our teaching team felt stirred to do something just a little bit different this fall. The subtitle of McLaughlin's book is The Twelve Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. And so we felt stirred maybe to start addressing some of these hard questions that Christians are being asked in different circles and different environments, maybe in your place of work, maybe it's a friend group or in your neighborhood. Some of those questions that we're addressing are, doesn't Christianity crush diversity? James Hawkins gave a great talk on that last week. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it on the website. How can you say there's only one true faith? The exclusivity of Christianity. Hasn't science disproved this Christian thing? Or doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Isn't Christianity homophobic? How could a loving God allow so much pain and suffering in our world? And so this morning, we are asking the question, does religion hinder morality? It's an interesting question. We'll get to that in a second. Let's look at Romans 8, starting at verse 5. Here's what it says. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, and the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the what? Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. It's a big if. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh and to live according to it. For it is, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. This is God's Word. Okay, the question again this morning is, does religion hinder morality? And there seems to be this narrative that's circulating in our current cultural climate that goes something like this. Maybe you've heard this. Religion has done more to perpetuate war and violence and bloodshed than anything else in the history of the world. Anybody ever heard that? Anybody ever heard that? Uh, 
in her book, McLaughlin quotes an atheist Nobel Prize-winning physicist who says it something like this. Religion is an insult to human dignity. With or without it, you would have good people doing good things. There's, a, there's an assumption in that comment. And you'd have evil people doing evil things. But for good people to do evil things, that takes religion. Really interesting worldview. Now, in her book, McLaughlin does this, a fantastic job of kind of deconstructing this narrative, and I really encourage you to read it. And she points out a couple of things. The first thing is, you're asking the question, does religion hinder morality? That, that's too broad of a question. That's like saying, food is bad. Uh, what kind of food are we talking about? What kind of religion are we talking about here? Are you talking about Buddhism or Hinduism or Taoism or Christianity? Because there are a lot of different flavors and varieties of religion in the world. God liked flavors. Did you guys catch that? And so they're, they're in, in all of these different religious worldviews make different claims. And so, uh, so, so that's the first point. You've got to kind of narrow in on that question. The second point is the data doesn't really doesn't really hold up. Uh, the, the 20th century, despite what many people thought was going to be this utopian advance, we're advancing as a society, we finally are enlightened enough to have science and technology, it will be the end of war and famine and death, and we're going straight to Tomorrowland. That was the sense at the turn of the 19th into the 20th century. And then we commenced to have the bloodiest century in the history of the world. And, and most of the bloodshed that happened during this time, this is just a few examples, were actually propagated by atheist regimes. Uh, Joseph Stalin, communist in Russia, over 42 million people died. Mao Zedong and the communist revolution in China, 38 million people. Adolf Hitler, 21 million people. It, there, it's this fallacy to say that religion has caused all this war and violence. Actually, it's the opposite. It's really interesting. It's really interesting. And so she goes on to say in her book that, that hidden in the claim or hidden in the question, does religion hinder morality, is this assumption that there is a measuring stick by which we judge what is true or right or good. We, we have to determine what is right or what is right. So, so does religion hinder morality? And, and the next question we have to ask is, how do you measure what morality is? What is the standard that you're basing your, your question on here? It's what we talked about a few weeks ago that C.S. Lewis said. He said, we cannot call a line crooked unless we have an idea of what straight is. And so this is exactly the point in where what we're talking about this morning starts to rub up against us as human beings. Because what we're saying here right now, this morning, is that there is an objective moral standard that exists outside of you outside of your personal feelings and your emotions and your attitudes that is true and that that truth can grind up against you sometimes and in fact it's supposed to if you read the scriptures or if your life looks if, if, if you're reading the bible and everything's like man my life looks exactly like this i'm amazing uh, something's probably wrong there when we read the bible it's kind of supposed to read us and transform us and change us. And so there's this objective moral reality that exists outside of us that God intends to press in on us to transform us and to change us. And we don't like that because what that means is immediately there is someone, some being, who is sitting in judgment over us as human beings. I don't like that. That word obligation from the passage this morning, I don't like to be obligated and so I have a, a few just quick points from our text this morning that I want, want to point out. I want to give you just a basic understanding, basic moral understanding of what the Bible teaches about morality. There's a lot of different things here. There's philosophy and there's theology. And if you guys want to have coffee with me sometime and we can talk about this, I, I read too many books. This is one of those talks where it's like, Josh, just stop, stop, Josh, stop, stop. And I didn't, okay? And so let, let's, let's look at a couple of points from this text, and, and again, we're asking this question, who ultimately gets to decide what is right and what is wrong? And the first point I want to make right out of the gate is, it's God. God gets to decide what is right and wrong. 
God gets to decide what is moral and immoral. God is the one who ultimately gets to be the judge. Christians believe that God is the measuring stick. He is the one who has established the laws of the universe. In the same way that God established gravity and physics and math, God established moral law in all of creation. Uh, in, in the passage we read here in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul compares the life of the flesh to the life of the spirit. And that word flesh is this word that means the seat of sin and rebellion in the heart of human creatures. And it says this, that, that the flesh is hostile toward God, that it does not submit to God's law and it cannot please God. And what Paul is doing here is he's laying out these two competing value systems. There's a way to live that is morally acceptable to God, and there is a way to live that is not. We don't like that. Now, you, you might be thinking or asking the question, now, why does God get to decide what's right or wrong? It's kind of an arrogant question, but let's go there. Maybe you're thinking that. Uh, I, I think the first thing we need to acknowledge is it's his universe. <laughs> It, like the, the universe that you and I live in, it, it don't belong to us. God created this universe. We live in his universe. One day when you get a universe, that won't happen. But if you did, you could make the rules and, and, and then you could live by those rules that you set out. But this is God's universe. We live in a world, a creation that he created. He breathed everything into existence. Parents, you ever have questions or discussions with your kids where they come to you and they're complaining and they're moaning? And, and what do you, mom and dad, what do you say to your kid in that moment? It's like, in our house, we don't do that. In our house, this is how it works. Or sometimes what we say in our family is, Wilsons don't do that. We're trying to train our kids that, that, that their behavior is separate from their identity. We want their identity to be who they are as our children and that their behavior flows out of that. We don't do that. And so this is what God is doing. This is his house. We're living in it, okay? Second point I want to make here. Morality is grounded in the nature of God. First Peter 1, 14 through 16, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, which was yesterday. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am what? Holy. God's holiness is this groundwork from which his moral character and his moral standard flow from who he is. Uh, these, it, it's not this, God is not sitting on a throne trying to culminate this arbitrary list of rules that he wants you to... He's, he's not the teacher who gives you busy work. Do you guys remember that teacher in school? Man, if you're that teacher, thunder, right? He's not the teacher that gives you busy work. Uh, in, in fact, the, the, the holy standard here is more about relationship than it is about rules. It's about out, an outworking of his his nature in relationship to his creation. When Adam and Eve sinned, uh, there, there was this moral chasm that was created between God and humanity so that now God's holiness is a threat to us. Do you understand that? That when Moses asks God, God, I want to see your face. God says, Moses, if you look at my face, you're dead. Or, or, the, or the poor guys who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, walking down the road, and they accidentally touch it, they fall down dead because of the holiness of God that rests on this artifact. Or, or priests who went into the Holy of Holies unconsecrated in the temple. The holiness of God is a threat to human beings because we have this moral chasm that has been created between God and people. So much so, you read Isaiah chapter 6, and Isaiah says, Woe to me. He's calling a curse on himself. He sees God sitting on a throne in a temple and he says, Woe to me. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. God is 
holy. His moral purity flows from his holiness. This is not so much about rule keeping as it is God trying to restore the relationship that was severed when sin entered the world. Does that make sense? God's holiness is a threat to us as his creatures. Okay, next point, number two. We are accountable for what is moral. Not only does God get to decide, you're not the boss, it's not your universe, it's his universe, but we are accountable for the moral and ethical standards that God lays out for all human beings. Romans 8, 12, let's read it again. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. We have an obligation. We have an obligation. That word literally means a moral debt. We have a moral debt before the God of all glory. And we are accountable to him because of that. Why? A couple of reasons. Number one, we are image bearers. You and I are created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says God created male and female in the image of God. He gave them dominion over animals, and, and, and we are his image bearers. We look like him. We are his, 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 his DNA has been imprinted on the souls of all human people. And so because we are image bearers, we have a higher standard of morality than other creatures. If my son Ezra walks into my living room and destroys something, he will be held to a different standard than if my dog, Obi, walks into my living room and destroys something. Obi will probably be punished more severely in different ways, but Ezra will be, will be held to a higher standard. Does that make sense? He's my son. He knows better. You know better. You, you bear my, we, we are teaching you what is good and what is right and what is wrong. And because we are image bearers, we are born with intrinsic dignity and value and worth as human beings. We're given dominion over the, the earth so that, so that we're held accountable for how we steward our time and our talents and our resources. Uh, we are accountable for who we are and how we live because we are image bearers of God. When a lion kills a zebra because it's hunting food, or even if a lion kills another lion, we don't attribute moral value to that action. It's just a lion. I mean, lions eat other lions. Lions eat zebras. That's what lions do. But what happens when a human kills another human? What do we do? Is that morally right or morally wrong? A secular humanist worldview would probably agree that it's wrong for human beings to kill each other, but they wouldn't be able to give you any philosophical grounding for that argument. Because if there is no God, there is no objective moral standard. And I want you to get this because this is really important. If if there is no God, if we are uh, just evolved from primordial ooze, and we are cousins to chimpanzees, and we have somehow, in the grand creation of the world, uh, we, were, we were the strongest at different points, and the, the survival of the fittest brought us to this point at this moment, then there is no intrinsic dignity and value and worth in other people. Because at some point along the way, we just killed the weaker ones. Does that make sense? If God doesn't exist to give us a moral framework or an objective moral standard, it, it, then we don't have one. We have nothing to base human dignity and value on. This is the biggest struggle for atheists or agnostic philosophers. How do, you, how do you get to morality? They can't answer questions of morality. And so they attempt to. There's a lot of different ways uh, that they do that. But, but this is why secular ideology leads to things like eugenics, where you're trying to purify gene pools. This happened in Nazi Germany. This is also why it's not surprising to read about termination rates of prenatal diagnosis for children with disabilities. It, it just makes sense when that's the, the framework that you view the world through, right? It's like, why would we not do that? It makes sense. Let's get the best and the brightest. Let's all bring them together. Uh, let, let's let's kind of cull out the weak ones. We're only as strong as our weakest link, and, and let's, let, that sounds great. What's wrong with that? God says 
in Genesis 9-6 that killing another human being is wicked. It's abhorrent. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. They're image bearers. Their dignity and value and worth has nothing to do with what they produce, nothing to do with what they, uh, what they can offer you. It is intrinsic to who they are. And so if a lion kills a lion, hey, that's what lions do. But if you kill a human being, man, you are violating God, his image. Make sense? Okay. Uh, second reason here why we're morally accountable, uh, we're aware. Like, like, we are morally aware creatures. I don't, I don't care. And we talked about this a few weeks ago again. Let's go back to Romans 2. Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required of the law. The law is written on our hearts. Their consciences bear witness. Like there is this thing because we are image bearers, whether you're a believer or not, it is possible. In fact, it's probably, it's likely, it happens all the time that people who don't believe anything that I'm saying, who will never acknowledge the deity of God, who will never bow down to Jesus, that they will do good things on this earth. It happens all the time. But they can't give any substantive reason for doing those good things. Uh, but, but there is this inclination inside of hearts that says, this is right and this is wrong. This is good. This is bad. We are morally aware creatures. And because of that, we, we understand that there are things that are good and that are bad. There are these things called sins of commission. Uh, these are things that we do that we know are bad. And, and Paul talks about those in Galatians. He says, hey, the acts, the, like it's obvious. This is obvious stuff. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discourse, self-dissensions, factions, like factions today, why don't, yeah, I don't, I don't. envy, drunkenness, orgies. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's like lists of things that we shouldn't do. We get that, right? So there are sins of, of commission, but there's also these things called sins of omission, and, and we talked about this at the end of Matthew 25, where Jesus is telling the parable of the sheep and the goats. And he says, I was hungry, and you did not give me anything to drink. I was thirsty, and you did not give me anything to eat. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. And they're like, when did we see you? And, he, and Jesus says, what you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. And so we sit, sin when we know the good we ought to do and we do not do it. Sins of omission, sins of commission. Does that make sense? We're aware of these things. We have this intrinsic awareness of what is right and what is wrong. Now, we are accountable for what is moral. Now, and if I stopped here, in this moment, this would be a pretty depressing sermon, right? It's like, God has a moral standard for your life, and he's going to hold you accountable for it and kill you one day, Okay. Like, huh, this is really encouraging, Josh. Thanks for the rain day. And so, so if I left you here, I would leave you with this like healthy dose of, of moralism. And I think a lot of people in Southern Christian culture have grown up with a form of Christianity or a form of godliness that de denies the real power of God. It's not about moralism. It's not about pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, do enough right things, and God will love you. Like if I left you here, we would just be sitting in moralism. You would leave here feeling kind of guilty. You'd maybe go back through that list in Galatians, and you're like, maybe have some envy. I don't know. Maybe have some political factions. Orgy. I don't know. Like, what, like what, what is this? And you'd probably try to measure your life by those things. But that's not where I want to leave you. And the other thing I would be doing a disservice here is it's way worse than you think. It's way worse than you think. Because it's not only sins of commission and sins of omission, even our acts of righteousness, even the things that we do to be good are abhorrent in the eyes of God. Isaiah 64, 6 says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. Like it's, like, it doesn't matter how much good we try to muster up in and of ourselves. It's not good enough. 
And so we are in a worse spot than we think we are. And then there's good news. And the good news is that the Holy Spirit empowers us to live morally. To say it better, I would say, the Holy Spirit empowers us to live like Jesus. He wants us to live like Jesus. Romans 8.10, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit whom raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. What he's saying is that even though we are still experiencing the consequences of sin, we still get sick, we still die, we still experience temptations of of varying kinds. Despite those realities, God himself has provided a means for us to walk in holiness, to be like Jesus. And And he does that in a couple of ways. The first way is he gives us this renewed vision of what it means to be human. There's this renewed vision of what it means to be human, that that something that happened in the garden in the image of God was, was broken, and that we needed Jesus to come back and do his work to restore the thing that was broken, so that now the vision for your life and my life as a follower of Christ is that I would be conformed to the image of the Son. Later on in Romans 8, Romans 8, 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Like, that's the goal of your life. That's the goal of my, to be, to look like Jesus, to walk like Jesus, to talk like Jesus, to live like Jesus, to love like Jesus. That is, Jesus is the standard bearer. Jesus is the plumb line. Jesus is the one we measure ourselves against. Of course, we're going to feel like we don't measure up. Thank God the gospel is not about our ability to measure up. Amen? It's about God being pleased with Jesus, not about God being pleased with our behavior. This is not about behavior modification. It's about trusting in a God who is doing this second thing, not only renewed vision, but he's giving us a new heart. He's putting a new heart heart inside of us. Ezekiel 36, I love this. If you're going to memorize one verse in the Old Testament, memorize this one. This is new covenant spirituality given to us in the Old Testament, and it says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you, and I will move you to follow my laws and keep my decrees gives us a new heart. He gives us new desires. He allows us to follow him. And to be clear again, I want to say this. Religion says, get your life together and then God will be pleased with you. The gospel says, God is pleased with Jesus. And so he saves you and he sends his spirit to live in you, to empower you to follow him. Amen? God's pleased with Jesus. And if you're trusting in Christ, God's pleased with you because he's pleased with Jesus. Um, There's this passage in Philippians 2 that sometimes my inner legalist really loves, that that little lawyer who raises up that likes to have that pull yourself up by your own bootstrap mentality. And and the passage is... is, uh, It's it's Philippians 2, uh, 12 and 13, and it says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm tough. I'm going to work it out with fear and trembling. And I think sometimes I miss the second part of that passage, which says, for it is God who works in us to will and act according to his good purposes. We work out what God has worked in us. God is changing us from the inside out, and we work that out in the way we live our lives. Does this make sense? And I want to give you an example of this this morning. And so um, I have invited a family from our church uh, to come up front this morning, and we're just gonna we're gonna talk about what living the values of Jesus, how that has impacted 
their family. And so would you join me in welcoming Joel and Alice Fankhauser up here this morning? Can you, can you guys grab the microphone in that chair right there? Otherwise, this may get awkward. It's already awkward. Um, hi, guys. Hi. How's it going? Hey. Hi. We have to shake hands in front of the crowd. Joel and Alice, um, glad you're here. Would you just give us a little bit of an understanding of who you are, maybe the makeup of your family? Um, why are you here this morning? Sure. So my name is Joel. Alice. <laughs> and we have uh, five children. We have three biological children, Silas and Micah, who are back here. Uh, Liza, who is hiding. And then two adopted children, Millie and Lee. Uh, Millie was adopted domestically, and Lee was adopted from Ghana. Can you walk us through a little bit of, of your kind of process in those adoptions and how you got there? And uh, did, did you wake up one day and think, hey, God wants us to adopt from these various places? Or tell us how that came about. Before we got married, we knew that we were going to adopt. God just put it in our hearts very early before we met each other. And then when we met each other in college, um, we started talking about getting married. It was kind of like, we should probably bring this up. And then it's like, oh, well, this is really convenient. So we know this will be part of our, our, um, our family. So we began Millie's adoption thinking that we were adopting from Ethiopia. And about the time that uh, we did our home study, our caseworker said, we have several moms in our area that are African-American and we have no families who are waiting for a child of um, a different race. Would you be open to switching from your international adoption to a domestic adoption? And it didn't take us very long to decide that that was the right thing for us to do. And so we brought Millie into our family um, when she was a day old. When Millie was about a year old was when we started talking about adopting again, because that's just kind of our pattern. We start talking about the next child. Well, that used to be our pattern. It's not now. <laughs> <laughs> we, at that time, we were talking about, like, who is the next child that's coming to our family when our current baby was around a year? And we knew that there were no immediate needs in our area, and so we began to look at another international adoption. And through um, various things, we had some long-term ties to Ghana. So we started talking about adopting from Ghana. But then things took an interesting turn as we began to pray about, like, you know, that form that you have to fill out. Have you guys, if anyone's ever been through the process of adoption, is that anyone out there? Okay, well, there's this form that you have to fill out that lists all of the various disabilities that you're open to. And so that is when we began to pray about who the child was that was coming home. And every time I so prayed, expl oh, yeah, ex ahead. explain this to us just a little bit for those who need a little bit more context. There's a form that you fill out that you have to check boxes that say I'm willing to take a child with X right. diagnosis. Right. Like you're open to a child who yeah. is blind or who yeah. is wheelchair bound or okay. who has various infectious diseases. Yeah. And it's a really difficult form to fill out because there's oftentimes things that you have to say no to and that's, that's difficult. So we began to pray and pray and every time I prayed I felt like God was putting on my heart that there is a subset of a culture who is ostracized and stigmatized without treatment um, for their condition, they're likely to die. And so I felt that um, we were to pursue the adoption of a child living with HIV. G give me just a little bit more on that because that seems atypical mm -hmm. for, for most people, right? And so what in you caused you to even say, I want to adopt a child that is perhaps the most marginalized? Like, can you, can you give us a little bit of that? was looking at the life of Jesus. Yeah. He was always touching people, like physically touching people that nobody else wanted to touch, like lepers and ceremonially ceremonially unclean and women with bleeding disorders who would make the 
clean, unclean. And those were the people he was seeking out. And so to me, like a child living with HIV, even in our culture, I think is still considered like if somebody found out, that might be considered a, a risky person to be around. Yeah, yeah. And so you're, you're going through this process, you're feeling like God is calling you to this, you're having to, to experience moral dilemmas in a form that you're filling out. And then Joel, how, how are you feeling about this as this whole thing comes about? <coughs> So Alice came to me and said she thinks we're supposed to be adopting a child with HIV. And at that point, our long-term goal was actually to move overseas. And so I responded, that's great. If God wanted to do that, he would have made it clear to both of us. (laughs) (laughs) Drop the mic. Yeah, walk away. So Alice said, well, how is he going to make it clear to you? (laughs) And I said, God is going to have to wake me from my sleep with the words, you want to bring this child home. And I walked away from that conversation. Okay, what happened next? Uh, Two months later, I was woken from my sleep with the words, you want to bring this child home. So Alice won. Yeah. Well, well, I, not, yet. Not, not yet. Not yet. I didn't tell her. Okay. <laughs> Good plan. Good plan. So I was awoken from my sleep the next night with the words, you want to bring this child home. It happened again. Yeah. Wow. So then I told her. And you told her. Because I'm a good husband. And did, did, and did that feel like confirmation, or did you need a third time, Gideon? <laughs> Just the two. Just, Just the, the two. two. Okay, good. Good. So what did you guys do from there? So then we proceeded to fill out that form. And when we were thinking about the context of, like, we're going to pursue this adoption, all of those other boxes on that form didn't feel that scary anymore. And so we basically checked just about all of them because I thought, um, gosh, I mean, hepatitis C, that's like nothing. You know, blindness, like that, we, that would require some changes in our household. But yeah, we could adopt a child that's blind. And so I think there were two boxes that we left unchecked, and we sent off our paperwork. Um, and then a couple, I don't know, 18 months later was when we received Lee's referral. Tell us a little bit about Lee. So our caseworker called and said, I have a little guy, cute little guy, that I want you to take a look at. The one thing we know about him is he doesn't have HIV. (laughs) His medical file is so incomplete that we feel like you're the only family we can offer his referral to because you checked all those boxes. So she sent the file to me and I read it. I guess I thought I was pre-screening for Joel. You know, like maybe he could be left out of this decision. (laughs) I don't know what I was thinking, but I read it. And I was so overcome with the unknowns. He was a 16-month-old baby who, um, he couldn't roll over, he couldn't feed himself, he couldn't crawl, he couldn't walk. He was 11 pounds. Wow. Um, And I thought, there is no way that Joel is going to say yes to so many unknowns, but I should probably tell him about it, so I did. I said yes. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And then tell us just a little bit about your process of bringing Lee home uh, and the God story that was involved there. So after we accepted the referral, we have to go through the process of um, the adoption in Ghana. And right after we accepted the referral, Ghana made some changes in their government and it became much harder to adopt from from there. Um, But we went to court in the summer of 2015 in Ghana. So we became his legal guardians in Ghana. and we were expecting, because the Ghanaian government gave us custody, that the U.S. government would say, okay, here's your visa. You've done everything you need to do there. 
but the U.S. government actually denied these visa. Wow. Um, so we were stuck in this pattern where we had a child who lived in a different country that we could live basically anywhere in the world with except for the United States. Um, so we were praying that Lee would be able to come home. And in December of 2015, I, I heard, I guess, I heard while I was praying, um, Lee will come home when you have filled up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for Lee, which is a paraphrase of Colossians 1, 24. And I don't know, I didn't know at the time what that meant, and I still don't actually really know what that means. I don't know what was filled up in Christ's afflictions for Lee while we were waiting. But at that point, I was confident that Lee was coming home. But I was not. Um, my fear was that Lee would die in Ghana without a family. Um, after we had accepted his referral and began the immigration process, we were told that he was put on medication given for heart failure. And so it felt like a race to mm -hmm. complete all of this important paperwork where we were at the mercy of other people and what was a bunch of unknowns felt like there was now only one thing that was known and that his heart wasn't working properly wow. and he needed to get home. Wow. <clears throat> so despite what Genesis 9-6 says, I actually started praying that our immigration worker would either die or lose his job <laughs> because that's the only way you get to new immigration worker is the one who is working on your case is no longer assigned to it. By in pray, praying imprecatory psalms. And so, yeah. <laughs> Did it work? Yes. <laughs> I don't think he's dead. Yeah. I, I think he moved on to a different job. But we got assigned a new uh, caseworker. Yeah. Um, and then in May of 16, I was praying again for Leah to come home. And I heard I, in my head, um, the time is at hand uh, when you will have completed what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for Lee. And this was on like a Thursday. And then on Monday, our social worker called us and said, the State Department called us on Saturday. Do you know someone there? They said Lee, they're interested in Lee's case. Wow. Yeah, so we feel like God literally performed some kind of bureaucratic miracle. And Lee was given a visa, even though all of the um, requirements on the Ghanaian side had not been met. Wow. To my knowledge, um, this may have happened for other families, but I have never heard of this happening for another family. Wow. And so Lee came home. Lee came home. Lee came home. Praise, alive. Praise God. He's still alive. Yeah. As, as we kind of come in for a close here, Alice, would you just tell us a little bit about Lee and, yeah. and who he is? And so um, when we come in and out of church, you maybe have seen me yelling at someone to stop running um, or to walk inside, and that is Lee. And he has glasses and runs kind of funny. He runs from his hips and is the most beautiful picture of joy. We see God's image in Lee every single day because we understand joy in a way that we never could have understood without wow. him. And so we're thankful. We invite you to see God's image in Lee. Um, it, it's easy to see it. But something that God put on my heart as we were praying about coming this morning is that there are other there are other people in the body of Christ and outside the body of Christ where the image of God is harder to see. Um, I have a very close relationship, even in my family, <clears throat> where the image of Christ is harder to see. Yeah. And I ask you guys, our body, help us to see it. Living um, in a family that experiences disability is tiresome. And sometimes we fail to look for it on our own. Yeah. Can you guys give Joel and Alice a round of applause here this morning?
I, I think, I hope you get the salient point that, that I, I want you to walk away with here this morning, and it's that only a belief in the creative, beautiful, dignifying God who makes people in his own image would compel people to step into some of the, the hardest things. And not just as some social do-gooder, because there's a lot of that going around, but because someone has intrinsic dignity and value and worth. And so when we talk about morality, we're not just talking about lists of things you should and shouldn't do. God has holy standards. He want, he's sanctifying us. He's transforming us into his image. But God also wants us to live and love like Jesus. That's what it means to be moral, I think. And so um, the, the question for you to walk away with is, how is God inviting you into that? How does God want you to live and love more like Jesus? Stephanie Fairbanks, our special needs coordinator, she said, we have three children on Sunday mornings who, who do not have a consistent buddy in our special needs ministry, who need a consistent adult presence so that mom and dad can come to church, so that the child can have connection, and, and, and that's a great way to do that. We also have five families on our waiting list for recess, which is our once-a-month respite night for families uh, experiencing uh, special needs, and, and where mom and dad get to go out on a date, and then there's this big hoopla crazy party, and so five families who can't go because we don't have enough volunteers. So that, that's a couple of ways for you to, to step into living and loving more like Jesus, um, but there are a lot of other ways. How is he calling you to respond, to work out what God has worked in you? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, your word. It's alive. It's active. It sharpens us. Thank you, Lord, for the example of your faithful people that puts spiritual tension on me and others uh, to, to make decisions that, we, that nobody would make except that we love Jesus. And Lord, thank you that you are stirring every person in this room to be more like Jesus, not just to, to live a, a Christian life that, that comes and consumes and, uh, and is a form of godliness and denies its power, but a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered life that ripples throughout the world, bringing the kingdom of God everywhere it goes. And so, Lord, may we be those people and may we be that church. We ask this in Jesus' name.